0: We open our Bibles this morning to Genesis 18. Genesis is the very first book in the Bible. So if you're looking for it, you only have to turn to page 16 in the Bible that's right there in front of you. That'll help you follow along as I read it. And the very first book here really is helping answer questions for us about what's the world that we live in like? What's gone wrong? Who is God? Is there any hope for me? We've been introduced to Abraham, the man God chose, that God loved, and through whom God is going to bless all nations on earth, all peoples everywhere. We've read of the promise given to him that he and his wife, even in their old age, will be given a son, a miracle child. So now we have God reaffirming his promise standing and speaking with Abraham. They look down over the the plains to the city of Sodom, a city whose name you know, even if this is the first time you've ever opened your Bible. And so we have Abraham speak with God. Listen as I read. This is Genesis 18. I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, For their sake, Then Abraham spoke up again, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him, What if only forty are found there? He said, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads as I pray, as we ask God to reveal himself, to explain to us the truth that will change our lives. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope of which we have sung today, the promises we have read in your word already, that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. And so, Lord, I pray that as we read your word, we would hear that truth. But more than that, Lord, that you would help us to understand what it means for us right now in this moment today. Father, for those that that join us today to, to listen in, For those that are visitors, guests with us, I pray that they would understand what is explained. That your spirit would give us not merely the the ability to understand the words communicated, but the ability to see the truth. The truth of what you speak to us in your word. Lord, we come asking you to make yourself known. We come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. What would you do if you saw something disturbing? What would you do if you witnessed injustice? Do you step in, do you intervene, or do you just walk away? When a thief steals a woman's engagement ring at a nail salon? When a teacher is forced to choose between groceries or school supplies in the checkout line? When an adult man potential predator tries to lure a young girl out of a coffee shop. All right, those are the kinds of scenarios that are presented on ABC News' What Would You Do? It's a hidden camera show where actors are portraying these scenes, and, and after the scene is unveiled, you as, as the, the viewer watch the host, John Quinones, come out to interview the real life witnesses. The show asks if people would intervene when they see something troubling. The goal of the show is to inspire hope, optimism, and integrity. It's meant to be a small example for us of people intervening for the cause of justice. And it forces the viewer to wrestle with that question, to respond to the inner dialogue. What what would I do? To to wrestle with those thoughts that you have... it's none of my business. I, I should stay out of it. Now, if we struggle with those kinds of scenarios, if we struggle with those kinds of questions, when the scenario is so obvious, even presented with actors on the stage, then how much more would we struggle when we actually know of the injustice of Sodom? You know the reputation the city has. And so when we stand with Abraham, and we wonder, will Abraham intervene? Will he do anything about this planned judgment that God is going to bring against Sodom? Maybe Abraham thinks to himself, I should just stay out of it. After all, Sodom really deserves whatever God decides to do next. And it's a dangerous place to put yourself between God and his judgment against sin. But but notice, and and this is one of those passages in Scripture which which feels so so out of place, so bizarre, as if Abraham and God are are haggling in the marketplace over the price of melons. We uh, you want fifty for it? Well, how about I give you I'll give you 45? Okay, not forty-five, I'll give you how about forty? And and he haggles the price all the way down to just ten. And yet, he's not merely haggling over the price of produce. He's haggling over the life of a city. And yet, notice how God even invites Abraham into this conversation. We, we, if, if you weren't with us last week and, and the, the, the snow may have, may have kept you at home, so you can always go online and, and catch yourself up on the sermons. But, but we found God standing with Abraham speaking to Abraham, giving Abraham the promise that his wife, Sarah, was going to have a son. And this is the continuation of that story. They're standing together, and Abraham is walking along with God. That picture of intimacy, of God being in the presence of Abraham. They've just finished a meal together, now they walk together together. Or, or even look at, the, look at God's inner dialogue in verse 17. We're back in Genesis 18, verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him. We're, we're being reminded of the promise of God. That God knew Abraham and loved him and chose him for a purpose of blessing all of the nations on earth. God has covenanted, entered into this permanent, meaningful relationship with this man, chosen him so that others would be blessed. It's a reminder to us that that even here, whenever we step into Scripture, grace comes before our response. God is reminding us of who he is. Look look again at verse 19. God says, For I have chosen him so that he will do what is right and just. God loved us, and then he asks us to respond. We don't try and fix ourselves and, and make ourselves right with God. God has made a promise to Abraham. God is really then inviting Abraham in to what he's about to do. God shows himself as the God who, verse 19, does is, is the God who does what is right and just and expects that from his people. That connection of, of doing what is right, of doing what is just, righteousness, justice, is a, is a connection, a, a theme that, that then is, is picked up over and over again in the, in the scriptures. As the rest of the story unfolds, that becomes a phrase that the people of God will use in their worship. It's, it, it's littered through the Psalms, those two together— that we are right with God and God is just, that God is a God of righteousness. He is perfect and holy, and that God will always do what is right. It's picked up again and again in the scriptures. And so, when, when God speaks then in verse 20 to Abraham, the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, their sin so grievous that I'm going down there. The outcry. Well, that language is used, again, throughout the Bible, the cry of people who have been oppressed, people who have been harmed. So much so that God will tell his people in Exodus 22 that when God hears the cry of the widow and the orphan, that God will respond. That God will certainly respond, that his anger will be aroused at the injustice that he sees, that he hears. See, God hears about the sin the brokenness in Sodom. So God is inviting Abraham into the story, and and look again at verse 22 as as the story unfolds. The men who are with God, now we'll learn in chapter 19, these are angels, angels here in the appearance of, of men. The men turned away and went toward Sodom. So the two leave to go down to the city, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. He doesn't take the cue that the conversation is done. They're on their way to Sodom. No, Abraham remains standing before the Lord. And then look at the detail we're given at the beginning of verse 23. Then Abraham approached him and said, Now why? Why when we're being told this, that they're standing together, do we need to be told that Abraham approaches the Lord? It's because it's, it's the boldness of Abraham to, to not merely kind of shy away and kind of wring his hands and say, well, hey, before you go, could I just kind of bring up one thing? No, Abraham approaches the Lord like a, like a lawyer approaching the judge, stepping up to put himself in the, in the place of, of one who is, who is going to call for righteousness. Abraham's boldness to intercede even for the city of Sodom. And this is the first time in the, in the Bible that, that, that somebody does this to God, that somebody initiates the conversation. It's always God appearing first to them. But, but here it's Abraham who, who, who presses the conversation further, Abraham who doesn't turn and walk away, Abraham who asks God the question in verse 23, "'Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked?' Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? I- I- Abraham is boldly asking a question, and in verse 25, he, he asks this question, this-, this bold and powerful question, one of the, the most important statements here in-, in the book of Genesis. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, that's a rhetorical question which is met with an obvious, of course he will. And this isn't an Abraham expressing doubt, saying, well, I mean, are you going to do what's right, or are you going to once again do what was wrong? No, it's, it's, will not you, the judge of all the earth, surely you will do what is right. You are God himself. I mean, you notice what Abraham is not doing. He's not trying to come up with excuses for Sodom. He's not trying to get God to set aside his, his righteousness. He's not saying, well, hey, c- come on, I mean— I know Sodom's kind of a bad place, but if you go and visit like all the other towns around there, and and even let's let's you know let's leave this you know let's go up and and visit some other cities or or go over to to the the Assyrian Empire or, or go down to Egypt. I mean they're pretty bad places too. So I mean you know Sodom's not all that bad. No, he's not making excuses for Sodom. He doesn't even ask God to set aside his justice in order to be merciful. No, what does he do? He actually pleads with God for God to do what is right? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? See, it's in the justice of God that we can find his mercy. Abraham doesn't plead for our sake, for how good we are. He pleads the justice of God. See, we're, we're people who, though, tend to think of passages like this, and particularly since you know where the story is going. You know what happens in the next chapter. I'm, I'm, I'm not giving it away to tell you that Sodom and Gomorrah don't survive. And so you and I look at this and say, well, I just don't like that kind of God. I, I don't like a God who, who goes around judging people. I'd like a God who's, who's a little bit nicer than that, maybe a little more loving, a little more friendly, a little more, you know, kind of palatable, so that when I go and kind of describe him to my friends, he doesn't come across as angry. But don't you see what, what God is doing? He's responding to the cries of those who have been oppressed, abused, and harmed. So when you say, I, I don't want a God like that, a God of judgment, you're saying, I want a God who... Who, when he sees something bad happening, he says, Hey, I'm not getting involved. You want a God who who watches the predator try and groom a child and, and he just turns aside and says, Hey, like, I don't I don't get involved in this kind of stuff. I'm I'm a nice God. But I mean, don't you don't you see? You and I are desperate for a God who brings justice and judgment. There is no hope for us otherwise. Otherwise, evil wins. If God does not differentiate between good and evil, if God just kind of shrugs his shoulders and throws up his hands and says, hey, you know what, that's, that's kind of the way they want to live, that's what they want to do, that's, that's their choice, it's their decision, I'm not going to do anything. That's not God at all. So you and I are desperate for God to intervene, and that's exactly what Abraham is asking him to do. God, be the God who intervenes and does what is right. But then do you, you notice Abraham is asking this huge theological question he's he's not throwing up his hands and just saying god that's not fair it's not fair that you're going to you're going to you're going to destroy sodom which is kind of the argument generally we want to make. I and mean, parents you've probably heard that kids you've probably even made that argument maybe even this week but hopefully not quite that dramatically but you've said that's just not fair. But see, Abraham is asking God to actually do what is fair, to do what is right. But he's, he's then asking this deep theological question. What if there are some righteous people in this city? Will the righteous get destroyed with the wicked, or, or just possibly God? If there's righteous people, could they have done enough to save the whole city? Could the righteousness of another count for me? Now that sounds kind of strange and foreign to our ears because you and I as, as modern people, as Western people, as Americans, we, we say, hey, I'll take responsibility for the stuff I've done wrong, but, but please don't let me get blamed for what all these other people have done. See, we're, we're quick to accept individual responsibility or at least put it on others, but we don't like this idea that, that there might be some kind of corporate responsibility. But, but you and I know that when other people sin, it impacts us. You and I know that, that the brokenness of this world, even the things that, we, that, that weren't our fault, they, it impacts us. And so Abraham is actually asking this really deep theological question, is forgiveness possible? Does God value righteousness? See, if my individual record, it, is, that, is that all I have to go on? Or is there hope that the righteousness of another, the goodness of another, might cover me? And so Abraham begins this negotiating process, and he, he starts with 50, perhaps an arbitrary number, or, or elsewhere in the Old Testament it describes a, a city should be able to bring at least 100 fighting men out to battle. And so, well, maybe he's just picking, like, if half the city, if half of the, the men of this city are, are righteous, will you destroy it? And you notice Abraham's humility, even as he speaks. He again comes to the Lord with deference and, and asks then for, for 45. Then he continues to negotiate down, he gets it down to 30. And then 10, he he says that that he is is merely dust. But God is the Lord of all. Won't the Lord of all do what is righteous? And he and he gets, he gets all the way down in verse verse 32, to ask the Lord. He says, may the Lord not be angry with me, but let me, let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And the Lord says, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. But we, ex- we expect Abraham to kind of keep going. Like, why, why stop at 10? Why not take it all the way down to just one? Like, what if there's just, just one? And, and Abraham knows at least one man living in the city, his nephew, Lot. And, and maybe that's the reason he stops there at, at 10. Because he thinks to himself, I, I'm not sure there's even one. I'm not sure Lot himself is righteous. Or maybe he feels like 10 is a, is a minimum of, of, of a righteous community, a community that can have influence. And it becomes the, the number in later Jewish history of, of, you need 10 to gather to, to form a worshiping community. But look at, look at what Abraham said in verse 32. He said, I'm going to ask just once more. He, he knows, even before he gets an answer to this question, that this is the last, this is his final offer. This is as far as he thinks he can push it. And why? Well, look at God's answer back in verse 31 when he asked for 20. God says, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Now, that's a slightly different answer than the answer the Lord has given up to this point. He says, I will spare the city, or I will, I will not destroy it. God is again bringing in for Abraham the possibility of judgment. The destruction is coming. And yet... And yet, you and I, we feel like we need the answer to this question. Yes, Abraham has, has, has been given a great answer. We want the answer, though, would, would the righteousness of just one man be enough? See, Abraham has been given a really—we've we, we, we've uncovered something deep and profound here about the way God interacts with humanity, that he will allow the righteousness of another to spare us. He will transfer the righteousness, the goodness, the right standing of, of ten— for the sake of a city. But Abraham will not press him further, will not press to ask the question that you and I wonder, would one man's righteousness be enough? See, and as much as Abraham will press the conversation here, as bold as he has been in in stepping before the Lord, in approaching the Lord and saying, God, I know you are bringing judgment against the city. I've heard what's going on there as well, but but will you, Lord? As bold as Abraham has been, he cannot save Sodom. See, Genesis 18 leaves us longing for for someone greater than Abraham. Isn't there somebody who could stand up and say, Will you spare this city for the sake of one? See, in Abraham, in his intercession, he has to point back to God's justice. He has to point back to God's character, but he cannot plead on his own behalf. Because we already know enough about Abraham to know that, that he can't put himself in the place of judgment. He's a broken man, a foolish man, a liar. But the Bible presses us further. Because the promise given to Abraham is a promise that goes to all nations. It's a promise that, that finds its fulfillment and hope in Jesus, in his intercession for us. Jesus, who will step before the throne of God and say, Will not the God of all the earth? Will not the judge do what is right? And so we find Jesus. At the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 17, and that's all the way in the, the New Testament, this is telling us the story thousands of years after the time of Abraham of what Jesus did for us. We find Jesus in John 17. This is the night of his arrest. Before he heads to the garden, the garden in which he knows Judas will find him. And he prays to God. It, it's, it's called Jesus' prayer of intercession, his high priestly prayer, the one who stands between God and The people. We read in John 17, after Jesus said this, after Jesus has taught his disciples, he looked toward heaven and he prayed. Father, the time has come. The time for judgment has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you, for you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He approaches God and says, God, I have authority, an authority that you have granted to me because I am your eternal son. And so I have come to give eternal life. I have come to give this gift, and that's what Jesus says, this is what eternal life is, that those who believe may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus steps forward and says, there is one who is righteous, the eternal Son of God who stood with you in his glory before all of creation, the one who now stands and says, put me on the cross, put me in their place. So you and I long for that answer to the question, is there there righteousness that could be counted as mine? Could I come with my sin and find forgiveness? Could God do what is right in forgiving me? See, if I come in myself, the only thing that God can do and be the God who does what is right is hold me accountable for my sin. See, I can't stand before God and say, hey, God, that's it's not fair that you're going to hold me accountable for the things that I've done wrong. Because to be fair, like, it's not like I live in Sodom. I mean, it's not like I'm as bad as they are. See, I, I would have to start trying to point the finger at, at everyone I could around me to, to try and make myself right, to make myself look a little bit better than they are. But for God then to just kind of overlook it and say, well, all right, you're fine. Move on along. Then when we ask that question, will the judge of all the earth do right? No. He let Kevin in. You would have an answer to that question that destroys the, the hope in that question. Will the judge of all the earth do what is right? Not if he lets a sinner earn his own way into heaven. Not if God ignores sin and injustice and evil. No, my only hope is that there's another, a righteous one who steps forward and says, I will take the penalty that belongs to him. See, and that's what the gospel is telling us. That Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. Jesus, who had never sinned. That's what the Apostle Paul, the way the Apostle Paul describes it. That God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Is there one whose righteousness can cover me? Jesus is my righteousness. His holy standing before God is given to me. He takes my sin from me. Will the judge of all the earth do what is right? He's punished sin. You see, this is where you and I find our hope. Not in getting God to set aside his justice in order to be merciful but in finding the mercy of God in the justice of God. In making our punishment fall on another. In counting his goodness as my own. Now the Apostle Paul, as soon as he describes this for us, this righteousness that you and I have, it's in the context of him giving us this same ministry of reconciling others. of of being willing to step forward and say, I will intervene on behalf of those who have been harmed and broken. Paul, Paul, in just the verse that comes right before the one that I read to you, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, We are therefore God's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then he reminds us of what that reconciliation is. That God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, because Jesus stepped forward and took your sin, you can now, when you see injustice take place in the world, you can step forward and say, I will do something here. But it's more than just following the example of Abraham. Abraham's overwhelming boldness in Genesis 18 to step forward and plead, to make a a bold theological argument that God, will you do what is right? See, if we merely try to follow Abraham's example and just try and be a little bit more bold, kind of pray harder, work a little bit harder, then then you and I will run into situations where we think, well, this one feels kind of too big. I mean, Abraham is willing to intervene on behalf of others, and you and I see injustice around us all the time. Maybe not in that hidden camera made-for-TV kind of moment, but you see it in the systems around you. You see it in the, the neighbors that you spend time with. You see it in the way that, that people are oppressed and broken. You hear their cry. And if you try and do it merely in the, in the strength of Abraham, kind of following his example, then you're going to work really hard, and you're going to think, I solved this problem, and six more problems sprung up in its place. I did this work. I changed this person's life, and, 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 and they made another mistake. I, I, I worked hard in my job. I, I rose through the ranks so that I could change the whole system. And yet, as I pull the thread, the whole thing just feels like it unravels. See, if we try and do it in our strength, then we're going to hit a place where we just think it can't be done. But you see, in the gospel, in the fact that that we have been accepted as righteous, made right with God, then we can have this absolute boldness to stand before God, to to stand before others. their, Their opinion, their mocking of us matters little compared to what God has already said about us. But we do so with a humility, because, because how, do you, how do you get to that place of receiving the righteousness of, of Christ? So you have to admit, you're a failure on your own. See, the gospel, the gospel allows us to see ourselves as deeply flawed and completely righteous at the same time. We are completely righteous before God because of who Jesus is, and yet I am still deeply flawed. I live in a world that's deeply flawed. But we can only do that not by merely looking to the example of Abraham, but by looking to the work of Jesus Christ. Not only his example of intercession, but his love and acceptance of us. See, Abraham is wrestling with the question, what if no one righteous could be found? And in Sodom, there aren't enough. What if no one righteous could be found, but God has answered the question by himself coming down into our need, into our brokenness, into our sin. Jesus is the righteous one. The mercy of God is found in his justice for the sake of the one For the sake of Jesus, you are not destroyed. Let me come now to God in prayer as I ask him to to impact our lives with this truth. Father in heaven, the questions we wrestle with this morning are deep. Questions about your character and your goodness. Questions about the world that we live in, its brokenness. Questions about our hope. The future, And so, Lord, I pray that you would let us see with clarity the hope of your gospel. Let us understand the power of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And Father in heaven, for those that that come in today with questions about who you are, I pray that in your word they would find this truth, that you are the God who sent Jesus to rescue us from our sins. Lord, help us to turn from sin, to find our hope in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, for those of us that that seek to to bring change, to intervene on behalf of those who are broken and oppressed, Lord, give us a, a gospel boldness that comes through Jesus Christ. And give us a gospel humility that recognizes our own sin. Lord, let us live lives that bring you glory. As we put our trust in Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray in his name. Amen.